0: Well, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31. As we read this text, I aloud and you silently along as I read, I'm compelled to mention the fact that Mother's Day can be and often is an immense joy for so many who spend time with family enjoying the multiple blessings that God has provided. And then for others it's bittersweet, because they recall a time when that blessing was so great and so packed with fullness of experience with loved ones and uh, as a result of the departure of maybe a mother, maybe even a child, uh, that has become bittersweet. They're fond memories and yet uh, the difficulty of the absence of that person um, is hardly overridden by the joy and yet ultimately we hope that it would be. And then for others it's simply a day of pain. There are those who perhaps never had a pleasant relationship with his or her mother, maybe there are those who've lost children, Uh, there are those who are estranged from their children, from their parents, even from their grandparents, and so the concept of Mother's Day can be a time of joy, it can be a time of bittersweetness, it can be a time of pain, so I want to be sensitive to that. The difficulty that you and I experience in life is, as you know, um, ordained by God. And yet, there is no escaping the reality that in the equal and clearly expressed doctrine of responsibility, some of our pain is self-inflicted. And at the same time, much of it can come as the result of the hard-heartedness of others. So as we look at this text today, I want to I want to preface this by saying that it would be cold-hearted of us to not acknowledge that this can be a very, very difficult day. I'm well aware of the fact that for some of you, this may be a difficult day for you. And um, so as we look at the text of Scripture, I want to help you to be mindful of the reality that the Scripture is for you. And and so when we uh, arrive at a text that seems not to address Your area of life, it's still for you. It may not directly address some area in your life, uh, but still, it's for you that you would know what the Word of God says. Paul says that he was committed to teaching the whole counsel of God. And so I'm committed to teaching the whole counsel of God, and it just seems appropriate to be in this text together this morning. And I think you'll find it joyous. Whether or not you have the potential to be involved in a mother-daughter or a granddaughter-grandmother relationship biologically, if you're a woman, you certainly have the privilege to be involved in other women's lives in the form of discipleship in the church. And In fact, you're called to do that. Uh, And at the same time, if you're a man, you might be looking at this saying, how in the world could I get something out of this? Well, because you need to know what the scripture says about godly womanhood. That you would lead your wife, that you would honor your mother, that you would uh, maybe one day minister to a daughter-in-law. I expect I'll have ample opportunity uh, to do that. And uh, we're taking names now in case you're interested. Uh, We're very interested. Uh, But my hope is that one day the daughters that Kimberly and I don't have will come in the form of our son's wives, and we greatly look forward to that and the privilege that that will be. Years ago, I knew a young lady who never missed a day in our ministry, and this was before we planted the church, before we planted the anchor. She was faithful to be there every Sunday. I mean, it was really like clockwork. You could measure the the schedule of our ministry by her arrival, except for Mother's Day every year, she wouldn't be there. But that was the only time, I mean, even when she went on vacation, she would make sure she was there on Sunday. And uh, she had resigned to the apparent fact that at her age, she would never be married and never have children. She'd never be a mother. And her relationship with her mother was less than healthy. so each year, she would avoid what she assumed would be a day devoted to exalting women who had given birth. And experience told her that that's what pastors do at the expense of those who have not. And so it was in those days when I was compelled to put together that message that I mentioned to you on prayer that we we went through, uh, I believe, a year or two ago together. What she didn't realize was that I would never allow the commercialized elements of Mother's Day to influence the handling of the Word of God or the elements of our time together on the Lord's Day. I wouldn't do that. But she didn't know that in her defense. It is possible to honor and encourage women who have given birth and are either raising or have raised children honorably without dismissing the value of our equally important sisters who have not. It's possible to do that. The high and honorable calling of biological motherhood is adequately addressed in God's word, but not at the expense of those who are not biological mothers. In the same way, there can be, and often is in the church, inordinate emphasis on family. Now, I'm not against family. You may have noticed that, but there can be an idolatry of family at the expense of the joy and privilege and duty to be involved in discipleship in the church but when the concept of family is exalted above god's view it is idolatry that's what we should call it and i think we should ask the question when we put so much emphasis on the concept of family or even the concept of motherhood or fatherhood in june right i think when we overemphasize those things we want to ask the question what about the widow right what about the never married? What about those who are married but never had children? What about the mother who was never married? How about the person whose children are no longer alive? See, if we walk by the unity of the Spirit, then what's best for the body is best for each of its members. And so earlier I I said to you, when you think about your role in our church, specifically your role in our church today as we spend time in the Word of God, you ought to be thinking about the fact that Scripture has plenary value. It is all of equal value with itself. So as we look at the Word of God together, I trust that you will be encouraged and strengthened and that you will be all the more educated and equipped to minister to whoever may be most helped by this text. So this morning, I hope to offer a very simple Clear and helpful exposition of this premier text from God's Word on what it is to be a woman who trusts the Lord. That's really what this is. Uh, she is one who, because of her trust in him, can smile at the future. Don't you love that picture? I pulled that right out of Proverbs 31, of course. She smiles at the future. Now I don't know about you, but when I'm anxious and when I'm distrusting of the Lord and and when I'm convinced that there are those who are against my efforts and my desires. I'm not smiling. On the other hand, when I'm thinking uh, and meditating on and resting in God's sovereignty and his grace, I'm, I'm at ease. I can trust a God who is sovereign, who loves people. I can trust a God who clearly and specifically and accurately describes himself in his word as being trustworthy despite the difficulties in my life, whether they are self-inflicted or not. So we trust him. And this morning, I think you'll see in the scripture, I think we'll see it together, that the woman who smiles at the future is the woman who trusts in him despite the difficulties in her life. Well, let's read it uh, together. As I said earlier, I'll read aloud. You can read along silently. Proverbs 31, beginning with verse 10. I'll be reading from the ESV and I'll be teaching from the NAS. You might be thinking, can't you make up your mind? Yeah, I just did. I'm reading from the ESV and I'm teaching from the NAS, okay? So here we go. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm and all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The proverb starts with a clear and concentrated expression of The excellent wives' pricelessness. So, point number one, I want you to see the pricelessness of the excellent wife. The proverb says, An excellent wife, who can find? The implication here is that it's difficult. It's not an easy task to find an excellent wife. And I would suggest, for the most part, those who are excellent wives weren't in the beginning especially for those who marry young. And by the way, I recommend marrying young. We shouldn't tell young people to wait to be married until you are going to be an excellent wife on day one. We should tell them, be ready to be married, that you would become the excellent wife. But the way this is stated, again, is in the form of a question, who can find? Who can find the excellent wife? And more so, then the implication that she is difficult to find, the reality is that she is valuable to find. She's priceless, really. The scripture refers to her as being excellent, which comes from the word excel. She stands above the non-excellent wife. She certainly stands above those who have no interest in the things of the Lord. She doesn't fear the Lord if she's not an excellent wife. If she is an excellent wife, it's because she fears the Lord. And then this very clear illustration, her worth is greater than that of rubies or of jewels, more generically. And, of course, you would say, and so would I, if you're married or if you think of your mother, you would say, of course my mother, my wife, has much greater value than that of any jewel. And yet, you know this, of all things that are coveted on the earth, jewels are more so perhaps than anything. They're more coveted by a greater and broader group of people than any uh, other materialistic item. Everyone, everywhere knows the value of a jewel. When one finds a rock and polishes it and finds it to be pleasing to the eye, even conformed to something that they could put in the, in the way of a necklace uh, or a ring, that in and of itself draws attention. Now, there's nothing wrong with one drawing attention to herself with jewelry. And really the idea with jewelry ought to be that it is an accent to the woman's beauty, particularly in her eyes. I remember when Kimberly and I were first getting to know each other, and I mean that first conversation where we really spent any substantial period of time together, we talked for 4 hours that first time. And she was wearing this frumpy old sweatshirt. <laughs> but I didn't remember that. She reminded me of that later. All I remember was her eyes, her beautiful green eyes. That your eyes are green, right? Okay, good. Yeah, they're green. Right? Sorta? So, they're beautiful, regardless of what color they are. You'll all be going to Kimberly immediately after the service to see what color her eyes are. And the reason I was drawn to her eyes, well, it had nothing to do with the sweatshirt. It had to do with the fact that you look in someone's eye when you talk to them. You hope to get to know someone, not, you don't look at their ears, you know, you're not staring at their feet, you're engaging with someone because you want to read them and you want them to be able to read you. Now, sadly, in our commercialized culture, beauty has been skewed. I'll never forget when I was going through Grace Advance in my training for church planting, a man named Chris Mueller, who I'd known for many years, he was John MacArthur's youth pastor way, way back, Chris came to teach us in Grace Advance. And he emphasized the need to minister to your wife. And he said, men, start with this. Determine that your wife will become the standard of beauty. Now that is impossible in our culture. It's impossible in our culture, in a secular culture, where the standard of beauty is what Hollywood decides. Right? That's not cliche. That's the reality. Men think of women as objects of their possession and, in some cases, their physical abuse in in many ways. And, And so it's not unusual for a man's eyes to be drawn to a woman simply because of her physical attraction. And the real problem is not that she's physically attractive and he needs to get over that. The real problem is he's got a wrong standard of beauty. And any man who is married must determine to set his sights on his wife becoming the standard of beauty, and then there'll never be adultery. It wouldn't be an option because he's completely satisfied in the wife of his youth. He's completely convinced that no one measures up in contrast to her, and that's really how it should work. The excellent wife is of greater value than any jewel no matter how valuable the jewel. And as I said, most of us would say, well, yeah, that's easy. And yet, jewels can be such a distraction. Not only jewels, but other materialistic items. But as you think of the value of anything material, it should pale in the comparison to what you look at when you look at your wife, your mother, your daughter. Man, as we think of women, we ought to recognize the reality that there are excellent wives. And maybe you're struggling in your marriage or your possibility of marriage and you're wondering, how should I be thinking about this? I've been so heartbroken. I've been so discouraged. I've found so little strength and so little hope in this relationship or in this potential relationship or this series of broken relationships. What should be happening? What should be happening is there is a cultivation of excellence. There's a cultivation of conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. If I can make a massive exegetical jump to what the Bible would have you be thinking, you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is what it would mean for you to be an excellent wife. I'll speak more to men on that issue later. See, there's no measuring the value of an excellent wife. And I can tell you from experience, there's no measuring the value of an excellent wife. Now you say, wait a minute, Todd, you, you seem to have a bad attitude about that word experience. <laughs> I really don't. I really have a great attitude about it. What we have said is that your theology must not be developed by your experience. God is not giving you more information than what's in the Bible. We say that experience is the byproduct of what you know from the Bible. You are not the standard of truth. The Bible is. So when you get your theology from the scripture, your experience then, not only alone with God, but with other believers becomes vibrant because you're dependent upon that which is ironclad reality. And this morning, an ironclad reality is the pricelessness of an excellent life. Now, let me say this before I move on. I said I'd address men later, but I I need to say this right now. No woman, no wife, no potential wife is perfect. So, point number one is not her perfection, it is her pricelessness. And sadly, what can happen in the mind of a man when he reads this passage or he hears someone teaching from this passage is he begins to go through the litany of issues in his mind that his wife is not priceless because of the, these 12 things. And it destroys women. Uh, It destroys relationships. So men, let me cut to the chase and jump to the end of my message and tell you, you should be cultivating her pricelessness. You should be thinking about the reality that God has said that excellent wives are priceless. So focus on those areas where she shows herself to be priceless. Cultivate that. Nurture that. Encourage it. Draw attention to it. Point number two her practice. We've seen her pricelessness. We've seen that the scripture refers to her as excellent, that she is of greater worth than jewels in a very concentrated way. Just one verse, and then you have a number of verses here that speak of her practice. I started to call this her passion. You know how I like to do the alliteration thing, Uh, but this isn't her passion. It's a passionate practice for her, but what we're about to look at is not her passion. One day a man said to his son, what do you think your mom enjoys? And his answer was, well, I guess she enjoys laundry because she does a lot of it. Well, um, that young man is much wiser now and would never say that. But what a woman does is not necessarily her passion. It is because of her passion that she has this practice. So she does what she does because of her passion, and we'll get to her passion in a moment. I've got a different word for it, but we'll get to that in a moment. But now we want to look at her practice. This is the practice that unfolds as a result of her passion. It is the practice that is prevalent among all her other practices. She sees her role as that of helper, and she understands it to be of immense value. She doesn't see the mundane things in her life, at least not overall. There are days where she begrudges them, I would imagine. But for the most part, and really on the whole, as she thinks about her life, she's grateful for the privilege to serve in the details, even though they are difficult. and They are drudgerous, maybe even painful. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 gives us insight into how this mindset is developed. Uh, Paul says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ, and that's where he goes on into this difficult theological issue of the head covering, and we'll address that another day. But the point in the text uh, is what we should understand, and, and that is that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Along with that, very, very important to emphasize that we are not talking about inequality. This is where those who have a cursory understanding or cursory awareness or observation of the Word of God begin to check out because they think that this somehow is an expression of inequality and it can't possibly be right. And of course, the standard term these days is chauvinism. And this is not the case. Be it understood that a woman who has children in her home, but no man, is not the head of her home. say, well then who is? The church is the surrogate head. The church serves the unmarried or widowed woman in her rearing of her children as a surrogate. The church is not the head. There is no head. There's no male head, there's no human head woman does not become the head. The woman is never the head. We saw that turn out quite problematically in Genesis 1 through 3. There's a curse on mankind as a result of a woman attempting to be the head. And this this creates bristling, this concept. It creates embitterness, even anger, that you would think that somehow a woman can't be the head of her home. Only If we believe what the Bible teaches, that's not to say that a woman can't be responsible and can't do a tremendous job of rearing her children in the difficulty of singleness. And I've seen many, many women do it, but it can't be done without the church. It's impossible. Nothing can be done without the church in a spiritual sense, in an effort to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Now, hang in there. You may be thinking, well, I did it without the church. Did I do everything wrong? Hang in there. We're not there yet, but we will be. The need to understand the practice of the godly woman, the godly wife, the godly daughter, the godly mother, begins with an understanding of her role. She understands her role. As Eve intentionally misunderstood her role, it is quite common in our day, Let's not bag on the world right now. Let's talk about the church. In the church, there is this idea, and we've all heard it. We've heard of situations where there are no men who are stepping up to lead, and so what else were the women to do? And the answer is find another church. You say, well, what if there isn't one for an hour away? Drive an hour. You say, well, that's easier said than done, and that's true, but still... A church that has no male leadership is not a church. It's not a church. Say, well, aren't the women just trying to be faithful and stepping up? Perhaps, but they're not being subject to Scripture. This is a painful discussion to have with those who only have a cursory understanding of the Word of God. But for those who love Christ and those who want to humbly obey and honor Him, it's actually a welcomed reality. For those who get their arms around this, for women who get their arms around this difficult topic, it's a relief. It's soothing. It says, okay, I can trust my husband because the Lord is trustworthy. I can trust my lack of a husband. I can trust in the fact that I have no husband because the Lord is trustworthy. He oversees all things. He is sovereign in all the details. And as a result of that, I trust him. Jesus Christ is our example. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. So this seeming inequality is erased in Galatians 3, where Paul says that they are neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't erase gender. (laughs) You'd have to erase a lot of the Bible to erase gender but what it does erase is the idea of potential inequality. We're simply talking about different roles. There's a head and there's a helper in the home. And then you got these little folks running around who are observing that and learning from it. And they're developing patterns in their own hearts and minds as to what that would look like. One of my sons has told me, when I'm a big dad, I'm gonna do it this way. Well, okay. I I hope that goes well for you. I I really do. I I hope that I've been helpful to you, but I'm sure that you'll do better than I. I'm deeply convinced of that. Uh, Verse 12 in our text, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Back to verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Now guys, it's a repulsive thing if in your heart right now you're thinking, but you don't know my wife. You don't know how difficult my marriage is. That's repulsive. Call it that, abandon it, and move into an awareness of the fact that the woman that God gave you desires at least in some measure to be the woman whose heart you trust. That in your heart you would trust her. That's what she desires. She desires for you to lack nothing to have no lack of gain. That's what she wants for you. If that's her desire, don't expect her to do that perfectly, but believe that that is her desire. She does him good and not evil all the days of her wife. That's the excellent wife. So again, back to you guys. For a moment, I said I was going to save all this to the last, but it's probably helpful right now to say, are you nurturing that? Or, Are you a constant thorn that every time she does something well, every time she does something good, every time she she does something for your gain, all you know how to do is to point out what you didn't like about it. It's destructive. But the excellent wife and the one who would be an excellent wife is finding her heart given to her husband's better good. Gals, there's so much joy in that. There's so much relief in that. The pressure is off. Your role is the better good of your husband. A woman is to take care of her husband. She is to serve him because that is the high calling of the godly, excellent wife. And in what she does, ultimately reflects in her husband's life. Proverbs 21 verse nine says, it is better to live in a corner of a roof. Now picture that. The corner of a roof. And in the context in which we are reading, roofs were much smaller than the one you probably live under today. A corner of a roof, not even the whole roof. The overhang. It would be better to do that than to have a wife who is contentious and share the house with her. Contention kills a man. You know, the constant contending. The constant pointing out what's wrong, the constant expressions of everything he didn't do that you had hoped he would. The Bible says it would be better for him to live up on the roof and only a small portion of it than for you to be contentious. Verse 19 of that same proverb says it's better to live in a desert. I've lived in the desert. (laughs) It's not a good place to live, if you ask me. than with a contentious or a vexing woman, a woman who's angry, who wants to inflict difficulty when things don't go well for her. Peter says in chapter 3, and you probably remember this well, verse 1, "'Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the, ha- the behavior of their wives.'" as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That little phrase has been the source of much difficulty in counseling for me over the years, without a word. There have been more than a few times where I've said, so what do you think that means? It could only mean one thing, but I find myself compelled to ask, what do you think that means? Well, of course it means without a word, but then as the discussion continues, I find that there's some willingness and ability to qualify what it Means, even though initially it's defined as well, it means no words. Yeah, but in this situation, I have to say something because if I don't, you're not the head. God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, the man is the head of you. Yeah, but if I don't say something, enough said on that, it's a black and white reality. We think of John the Apostle as black and white. Peter is really black and white here, without a word. He doesn't say without a hundred words. He doesn't say limit it to six words, without a word. When? When your husband's disobedient to the word. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, verse four says, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now guys, if you're thinking, if only my wife would do that, I'd be a better husband, that's repulsive. Call it repulsive, call it idolatry, abandon it, and get back to the word of God. Your faithfulness as a husband must not be dependent upon your wife's excellence. Gals, your willingness to be excellent must not be dependent upon your husband's faithful leadership. Our text in verse 13 goes on to say, she looks for wool and flax. There's really not much need to uh, illustrate or describe what's going on here, but you can see that she's industrious. Again, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. Now, don't go, go out and buy a sewing machine if that's not your thing. But the point here is that in this era, in this day, sewing was important. For a woman to make the clothing was just how it was done. It was quite unusual for someone else to make your clothing and for you to go you know, pick amongst several options for your family and for yourself. But she did this. She looked for wool. She looked for flax. She worked with her hands, and she did it with delight. Say, but what if that really wasn't her thing? She did it with delight. What does that mean? Uh, let me help you understand this just in my own life. There are things pastorally that I have to do that are more detailed than what I really would prefer or choose to do. But I find delight in them because I know that faithfulness in those little things is what the Lord uses to measure whether or not I'm going to be effective pastorally in your life. I must do them. I might not choose to do them if I didn't have to do them, but I'm not going to have drudgery in the midst of it. I'm not going to disdain it simply because they are things that I just have to do. I'm not a detail guy by nature. I don't love looking for grammatical errors in anything but I know that they are important. If we are going to say things effectively and helpfully and ministerially, we must be diligent in the details. A godly, excellent wife is diligent in the details and she finds delight in it, even though she might say, I'd rather be snowboarding. I'd rather be eating ice cream. I'd rather be enjoying my children than working for them. Well, right, of course, that's normal and it's not sinful, but there is still delight in the mundane. Yes, there are those who love to sow. There are those who love to do these things, but certainly not every woman finds a natural tendency to do these things, but she still delights in them. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She's willing to do that, which is necessary to provide a diversity on the table that her family would enjoy it. She rises also while it is still, uh, still night, and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. Of course, not all of you have maidens, at least I don't think you do. But you do have the responsibility of ministering to other people. You have not only responsibility of ministering to your family, but you have the responsibility of discipleship, being involved in other people's lives. And you will you will do that by providing portions necessary, be it spiritually or Uh, monetarily perhaps in some cases, or food in other cases. She considers a field and buys it. She's smart. I like to think that word is really the most appropriate here. She takes the time to think about the finances of the home. And when the opportunity arises, she will investigate it. Of course, she'll consult with her husband. And she'll consider the possibility of how to make money. It is not evil or sinful to make money. Money is not evil. Money is amoral. Uh, Money is not the root of all evil, as that passage has frequently been misquoted. The love of money is the root of all evil. But to make money is a good thing. And the woman who is willing to serve and supplement her home by looking for opportunities to make money is exhibiting excellence in her uh, responsibilities in the home again she considers a field and buys it from her earnings she plants a vineyard so she does what she can with what she has you know she doesn't spend what little she has frivolously and foolishly she invests it investment is an expression of wisdom wise investment is an expression of wisdom throughout the scripture she's not interested in a get rich quick scheme you know something that's going to make you extremely health, uh, wealthy so that you can you know provide for everyone that's usually the statement behind the, the get rich quick schemes but she understands what really is wise and what really is effective and what really is financially lucrative she pursues that and then this she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong she's willing to do physical work so it's not shameful to do physical work. It's also not something that should be worshipped, but it's right. She works. She's strong. Verse 18, she senses that her gain is good. That's not pride. It's not arrogance. She simply says, when I've done well in finances, when I've gained something uh, for the family, when I've done well with it, and gain is the result, she can honestly look at it and say, hey, that went well. She's not saying, oh, it was just the Lord. I didn't really do anything. Well, it's the Lord's grace, but yes, I was responsible. I did what I needed to do, and I'm going to try to do that again, and I'm going to be faithful in those things. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. I'm going to learn from other people's mistakes. But when it's good, I'm going to call it good. Her lamp does not go out at night, right? She's ready at the beck and call of her children, (laughs) We had that experience in the middle of the night last night, as we usually do with our one-year-old. Now, I won't give you too many guesses to figure out who's the one who gets the baby in the middle of the night. Yeah, every now and then I'm, you know, putting him on my chest and he falls asleep on my chest. But he doesn't want me. He wants her. Sure, I'm fun and all that. But when it comes to the real needs of life, he wants her. She... um, stretches out her hands to the distaff. This is really an old-time sewing machine. Uh, Her hands grasp the spindle. She does that work. She does what's necessary to supply for her family. She extends her hand to the poor. This is a whole different issue, but these are all things that are measures of practice. They're things that a, a woman is known for. An excellent wife is known for her practice of doing these things. What is among them? She helps the poor. Now, as I've mentioned before, I'm convinced that this is not the act of giving money to people that you've never met before who are holding a sign saying, God bless you. In my mind, that is irresponsible. You say, but I think the Holy Spirit prompted me to do that. If you're deeply convinced of that, I'm not going to argue with you on that, but I will say that you have no idea where that money is going. On the other hand, when you give to the poor, when you serve the poor amongst the body of Christ in particular... When you give to those who are expressing need and they're looking for theological and spiritual help, you're engaging in a wise investment in eternity, regardless of whether or not that person spends it exactly as they should. That's not the issue. The fact is you're investing in someone who's willing to allow you to bless them with finances that will hopefully help them spiritually in the long run. When a woman does that, as the text goes on, she stretches out her hands to the needy. She doesn't just minister to those who are near and convenient. She stretches out her hands. She searches them out. She looks for those. Many of you are gifted with the gift of mercy. And so you're more aware of the difficulties going on in people's lives because you're looking, not because you have some clairvoyance, but because you're looking. You're interested in knowing what difficulties are going on in people's lives, maybe more so than others, because of your spiritual giftedness. You might be more inclined to stretch out your hand to the needy because you're more inclined to be aware of their need. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. Again, this is obvious. I grew up in an area of the country where every now and then if you went outside, you you might freeze to death. <laughs> Because there was so much snow. I got frostbite one time when I was out sledding with some friends. And I came home and I remember my mom, you know, a a layer at a time, peeling my clothes off and then, you know, gently and carefully warming my body back to uh, the ability to eventually walk and go out and get frostbite again, uh, which is what children do. But the, the woman who knows that there is the potential for bitter cold takes care of her children. She dresses them well. She readies them for difficulty, and not just when it might be cold, but when it might be hot. She does what's necessary to ready them or prepare them for all the difficulties of life. She uh, is not only not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet, an indication that they are dressed well for the bitter cold. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She dresses well. She is concerned about her appearance because appearance does matter. Now, let it be known that we are not talking about the need to set the standard in terms of clothing that draws attention to oneself. But she is concerned that her appearance, I think this is the the real issue, that her appearance is not distracting Appearance can not only be distracting when one invests so much in his or her clothing, but it can also be distracting when there's no effort at all to be concerned about the potential to be distracting. She is concerned about her clothing being good clothing. I had a friend years ago tell me, I just don't worry about my clothes. I just buy whatever because they're going to wear out anyway. And my thought was maybe if you bought clothes that didn't wear out so quickly, you might actually save money in the long run. And this could well be true in the home of an excellent wife that she is looking for clothing that's the best deal. She looks for the bargain. She looks for the sale. But she looks for clothing that's going to last and it's going to protect her children and her family, her husband, from the elements. Now this, this is a big deal. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. What is he known for? He's known for how he's dressed. That's the context. He's known for how he's dressed. Now, it's hard for you and I to get our arms around this because in our culture, we could easily be thinking, okay, so this woman's husband wears a tux everywhere he goes? He's dressed in a three-piece suit and a really nice tie and everything he does? No, that's not the issue. The issue is that in the particular culture, in this particular culture, where fine linen and purple were known to set a man apart for simply being dressed well in a non-distracting way whatever that is in our culture should be on her mind that she would be thinking about how he might be most influential in the world that he might be most helpful to others in how he dresses so she not only makes coverings for herself she makes coverings for her husband in such a way that he is known well in the community She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Again, she's smart. She does what she does in such a way that it results in financial increase for the family. So we've looked at her pricelessness. We've looked at her practice, and her practice is lengthy, as you can see in the text. But number three, we want now to look at her piety, her piety. What is piety? It's simply spirituality. It's an older word. Uh, a lot of people still use it today. Maybe you're not familiar with it, but piety is a good word. The Bible uses the word piety, so we should use it. Piety is shown in verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Now, you see the greater emphasis on spirituality as over against clothing? He could have just jumped to this and not uh, not addressed the matter of clothing, but he addresses clothing because that's important but then he says but that's not her clothing clothing's not her clothing apparel is not how she ought to be known not by what she wears we see that again in 1st peter 3 that she's not known by for, by her adornment but she's known by a gentle and quiet spirit well here she's known by her strength and dignity and that's her clothing that's how she's known Ultimately, at the end of the day, or maybe years after having interaction, had interaction with this woman, you wouldn't say, you know, I remember on a Thursday in September in uh, 1998 that she was wearing, you know, you wouldn't think that. What What you would think is, that's a woman of dignity and strength. That's how I remember her. That's her clothing. That's what she is dressed in. That's what she is robed in. And what does she do as a result of that? And this is where we get the title of our message, She Smiles at the Future. Because she has a clear conscience. She has strength that comes from the Lord. She's committed to other people. She does care what other people think. She is concerned about being kind and gentle and loving and gracious. All the commands that Christians are given that are to be assessed by other people. The person who says, well, I'm not concerned about what other people think, only the Lord, is not concerned about what the Lord thinks because the Lord thinks that you should be concerned about obeying his commands that consider other people's assessment of you. You see that pervasively throughout the word of God, her strength and her dignity. She's not a fool. She doesn't bring attention to herself with ridiculous and unbecoming humor. I'm not saying she's not funny. There's nothing wrong with being funny. To quote C.J. Mahaney, either you are or you aren't. (laughs) And if you're not, you probably shouldn't try to be. But if you are, praise God, because that can be winsome and can be helpful in conversation and in ministry. But she's dignified. She knows what's appropriate. She takes time to think through her words and her actions and her heart attitude. Her dignity is expressed as a measure of her strength because she is strong. And I didn't say strong-willed or prideful or arrogant, but she's strong in the Lord. That's the issue, right? Because she's strong in the Lord, she is a person of great dignity. And as as a result, regardless of the condition of her family, She can confidently say that she looks to the future with a great attitude, with great pleasure. She can believe that the Lord has blessed her. And in that blessing, she is willing to draw attention to the Lord in how she ministers to her family and others. She has that way about her. As I said, she has a clear conscience and the strength of the Lord is hers. Verse 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. When she opens her mouth, what comes out? Bible. I don't mean that she just always quotes scripture and everything she does, but her speech is not only seasoned with scripture, it is driven by scripture. A lot of people sprinkle their conversation with Bible and many times twist the scripture so as to use it to persuade people to believe what they think reality is. But the excellent wife speaks Bible. She understands it. She studies well. She understands hermeneutics because the Bible demands it. The Bible demands that you look at the Bible with honesty that you believe it for what it means. You believe 2 Peter chapter 1 that tells us that no prophecy of Scripture has ever been interpreted by man, but it is of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's interpretation. And she believes that, so when she studies the Word of God, she's not looking for a proof text to prove her point to someone. She's looking for what God has said, and she subjects herself to that. And even in the face of her husband, she doesn't fear him. She's willing to say, but... I think that after careful study and humbling myself before the Lord, that this is what this text means. The history of the church indicates that this is what this text means. Careful and honest approach to the Word of God has led me to believe that this is what this text means. She can do that with confidence. She opens her mouth in wisdom because her mind is full of God's word and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She doesn't do it with a baseball bat. She does it with kindness. She doesn't beat her children or others with spiritual torpedoes. She loves them. She does what she does with gentleness and with kindness. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, we read, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people are impo- and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, remember this is Paul speaking to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for all salvation Through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Who did the Lord use in Timothy's life? His mother and his grandmother. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll see that they are the two people that most influenced him. Timothy's father was an unbelieving Gentile, a pagan, and yet his mother and his grandmother taught him well. Gals, you may be in that situation where your husband is an unbeliever, or maybe he's experienced a false conversion, maybe he's a believer and he's very immature, but regardless, there is hope that your children will follow the Lord. I think you ought to look closely at 1 Corinthians 7 and realize that even in the situation where the husband is an unbeliever, it is not such that your children cannot become holy. point is, they can become holy. But if you're constantly blaming your husband's disbelief or his immaturity for your children's condition, then you are equally to blame. But if you're willing to trust the Lord that he is going to do a work through you despite your husband's condition. You're proving to be the excellent wife, much like Timothy's mother and grandmother apparently were. This woman, this excellent wife, is tender with her children when she teaches them. In Proverbs 4, verse 3, we see, when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. This is a natural willingness and heart attitude of women toward their children to have tenderness for them. Paul even calls upon that when he reminds the Thessalonians of just how he ministered to them as a nursing mother tenderly ministers to her children. Proverbs 1 verse 8 says, hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. The writer of the Proverbs here goes on to explain that the person who looks for evil, he lies about waiting for blood, ultimately lies about waiting for his own blood. The demise that he hopes, the embitterness he has toward other people will result in his own falling in the pit that he digs for others. It's an axiomatic reality. But the man who follows the way of his mother's teaching will be blessed. To a guarantee. Proverbs 6, verse 20, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Gals, when you teach your children and you think they're not getting it, you must ask the question, Am I doing it tenderly? Did I do it with kindness Or did I do it with an overbearing spirit, with a spiritual baseball bat? The text goes on to say, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman. The hope would be that a godly woman would protect her sons from the evil woman. That adultery would be stayed off by a godly woman's tender efforts to teach her children well. Verse 27 In our text, Proverbs 31, she looks well to the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. This is a word picture pointing to the matter of laziness. She's not lazy. (laughs) I know more than a few women who are not lazy. As I look around the room and I think of the work that the Lord has done in our church, the Lord has blessed us with a massive Blessing in the hard working spirit of the women in our church, and clearly that's in the church simply a byproduct of what they're already doing in the home. She turns off the TV, she unplugs it, she gets rid of it. She does whatever is necessary to cultivate her own interest in being faithful to the things that the Lord has called her to. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness, if you will, she eats the bread of diligence. So we've looked at her pricelessness. We can't measure it, her value. We've looked at her practice, and we've looked at her piety. She is a woman of strength and dignity. She's a godly woman. She fears the Lord. We didn't get to that, but we will. We want to look now at number four, her prize. What is her prize? Well, the text says her children rise up and bless her. Again, Proverbs 1 8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 10, verse 1. But a foolish son is a grief to his mother. The Proverb tells us that the one who does not discipline his or her children hates his or her children. See, but I know I know some people who don't discipline their kids, they don't hate their kids. Yes, they do. They love self. They love their popularity with their children more than they love the command of God that requires corporal discipline. It is the measure by which God gets to the heart. To quote Ted Tripp, I don't understand the connection between the heart and the bottom, but it exists. The woman who refuses to discipline her children can be certain that her children will rise up and not bless her. Say, but I did discipline my children and they didn't rise up and bless me. Did you do it with tenderness? Was it an act of love or was it an act of control? Was it a desire for behavior modification? Were you just interested in compliance, just getting them out of your hair? Proverbs 15, 21, but a foolish man despises his mother. Friends, brothers, sisters, it's so important that you and I not deny the relationship between parenting and the child. Your children are a product of your parenting as are mine. Please don't fall irresponsibly on the doctrine of God's sovereignty and say, well, I did what I could. I raised them in the Lord. I don't know why they turned out the way they did. You had input in that you do have input in that. If you're raising your children now, or if your children are out of the home, you still have input. And in a moment, we'll get to that. But please don't abuse the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Please don't abandon the doctrine of your responsibility, which is equally important throughout the scripture. Please acknowledge that there is a relationship between the spiritual condition of your children and your parenting. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm Trying to help you understand, and we'll get there in a moment, to the hope that you can and do have in Christ for the outcome of your children. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. I can, in my experience, I can say that about my wife. It's true. I'm deeply convinced that my wife excels all women. Now, I'm not going to run around saying, you know, you need to follow my wife because she's the standard, but that is the attitude of my heart. I personally believe that's true, and I think it is equally acceptable and right for you men to say the same thing about your wives. I wouldn't want you to say Todd's wife is excellent above all else. I think that would be foolish on a number of levels, but it also wouldn't be true. It is important that men, we think of our wives as the standard setter for godliness that we would see them as being faithful in such a way that sets the standard for others. Not only do her children rise up and bless her, but the husband of that woman praises her as well. Now, there's a sense in which we can look at this text and say, okay, the real issue is that for the excellent wife, this comes naturally. But we also want to look at the ancillary realities in this text, that men have a tremendous influence on this. The excellent wife many times becomes more excellent as a result of her husband's patience and her love, uh, his love and his kindness. There are those whose lives can be described as noble, but the excellent wife excels them all. There is nobility and then there is excellence, and they are very different. Nobility is simply the matter of a woman's ability to have attention drawn to her because she's done good in some way, excellence is a spiritual quality. Excellence is reflective of God's character in the woman's life. And then this, and you've heard it many times charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. These are not evil in and of themselves, but if they are considered to be the primary traits of a woman, then she's shallow. Charm? Nothing wrong with charm. But if that's the basis of her condition, she's shallow and useless. Beauty? It's vain. Physical beauty, is there anything wrong with physical beauty? Absolutely not. It's actually revered in the scripture. But at the same time, beauty in and of itself is vain and meaningless and pointless and has no eternal value at all. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Let me just say this at this point. This is her prize. She has been granted the gift of fearing the Lord. How does that come? A high view of God. Men, if you're cultivating a low view of God in your home, how in the world do you expect your wife to be a godly, God-fearing woman? You and I, men, should be doing everything we possibly can to have a right understanding of what God's word says about God, that we would exalt him in our conduct, that we wouldn't gossip, we wouldn't slander, that we wouldn't talk about other people in such a way that says, wait a minute, God, I guess, will be mocked. God says he won't be mocked, but I don't mind mocking him by talking about other Christians. See, that exhibits a low view of God, and if you're cultivating that in the home, how can you possibly expect your wife to be an excellent wife? It's absolutely crucial, man, that we nurture this statement. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Do you praise your wife simply when she looks good? you praise her just when she's sweet? Do you only Encourage her and strengthen her when she is favorable in your eyes in a physical way. See, her prize is also the product of her practice. Her practice is to do things that exhibit a fear of God. She's willing to do the difficult things and to do them with delight. Verse 31, kind of a final statement here. Give her the product of her hands. I say give everybody the product of their hands, right? Let's let people experience the consequence of their actions. And if it's godly actions, right? If it's a godly practice, then let's trust the Lord that he's going to provide a prize for the person who has a godly practice. Certainly, her prize is her children's reverence and her husband's reverence and even the reverence of those in the community, that they would praise her. But her ultimate prize is something that she cannot earn. It's something she cannot achieve. She can cultivate it, but it's a gift of God to have a high view of him. The woman who fears the Lord, is, as you know from the proverb, is the woman who is not only knowledgeable, she's wise. What is the beginning of wisdom? Wisdom leads to fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. All those things, knowledge, wisdom, fear of the Lord, they work together. The more we know, the more we are to submit to what we know and the more we fear God in light of who he really is. So then what is her prize? You could say that it is the praise of her children or her husband and even of the community, but if it were only that, she might be as the Pharisees whose reward was the praise of men. As they prayed in public, their desire was to be revered by men, and that was the extent of their reward. People said, oh, aren't they great, and they died and went to hell. But the reward of the godly woman is fear of God, a God who is rightly feared. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The indescribable gift is Jesus Christ. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The psalmist says in Psalm 16.5, he says, you support my lot. You are my portion. You are my lot. You are all that I need. This is the mindset of the godly woman. God is her prize. In Luke 10:38, you know this text of Martha and Mary. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, "'Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do the serving alone?' "'Then tell her to help me!' But the Lord answered and said to her, "'Martha, Martha,' You are worried and bothered by so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Gals, whether you're a wife or a mother or a daughter or a grandmother or not, what cannot be taken away from you is a high view of God, despite the circumstances of your home, your job, and your neighborhood as you cultivate the fear of God based upon what the Bible says about him, and you refuse to allow someone to influence you to think and believe that God is an impotent, non-sovereign God, if you will stay strong in that, God will bless you. God will ultimately be the one who praises you for your excellence in the home. So some questions then as we close. If you're not a mother or a wife, and your mother is no longer living, how do you respond to a text like this? How do you respond humbly but strongly with strength to a text like this and say, Lord, I don't want to be discouraged by Mother's Day. I don't want it to be a day when I avoid the church because we just, you know, we give out... White flowers to women whose mothers are alive and red ones to women whose mothers are not alive and things like that or however that goes. I probably got it backwards. Uh, But all those things that can be so difficult and painful for me, I don't want to be that. How do I respond faithfully if I'm not apparently categorized by this text of scripture? Here's how you should respond. Think of Paul's words to Titus in chapter two, Titus two. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see, what Paul is doing here with Titus is not telling Titus how to teach women. He's telling Titus how to teach women to teach women. It's discipleship. This is the greatest and most eternal relationship in which to be involved, humanly speaking, that there would be an emphasis on discipleship in the mind and the heart and the life of a godly woman is for every woman. You see, not just for women who have children. Yes, they are to disciple their daughters and even their sons for, in some sense, but discipleship is This kind of relationship, being an excellent woman, being a woman who smiles at the future, comes down to a willingness to understand God's call to imitate Christ and to call others to imitate you as you do that. Titus 3.11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips. Watch your speech. Ask yourself, am I careful? Am I willing to keep a record of everything I say about every person, including my husband or including my potential husband or including other men or other women? Am I willing to not be a malicious gossip? And am, I, am I willing to be temperate, faithful in all things? See, ladies, that's how you should respond regardless of your familial status, your familial experience, I should say. Now, for those of you who have mothers or children, What do you do? How do you respond to this text? Wherever you are in life, pick up where you are. You say, but Todd, this has been discouraging. I mean, my kids are grown. They don't know the Lord. Uh, I, I don't know what I did wrong. If I did anything wrong, be the mother that you are at your age and at their age. And abandon the idolatry of wanting to undo and redo the past regardless of your children's age. And let me tell you something. There is equal hope for you in your circumstance, and here's why. In a very theological but practical reality, the experience that you have up to this point, when God begins to do the work in you that you desire for him to do to make you the excellent woman, and perhaps he's already begun that in a substantial and obvious way, when God does that and you begin, by Christ's grace, to have influence on your children and other people's children, Whatever the past holds is now the leverage that he uses to produce the greater weight of influence on those who are looking on. Everything that's true about your life, whether your successes or your failures or some combination of both, are now explosively used as the weight by which the change is noted. It is the backdrop against which this new and godly life that is influential and effective on more people than you might ever have imagined that shows the contrast. And the Lord can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You may think, my my life is gone. I had a gal tell me years ago as I was teaching a more reformed and faithful theology from the Scripture, she was in her late seventies. We were going through a-, a. W. Pink's book on the attributes of God, and she was just absolutely overwhelmed with joy, you know, feeling as though for the first time in her life she was being taught well about the character of God. And she said to me, "Why in the world?" She'd been married three times. She was on her third marriage. She had a very difficult life, you know, some of it self-inflicted, but some of it not. She said, "I don't understand why God waited this long." I've been in churches all my life. My dad was a pastor why now am I only hearing this truth? Where did you come from and why did you have to do this to me? And then she backed away and said that I'm thankful because I'm growing for the first time ever. She said, why would the Lord wait till I'm in my late 70s to show me truth that is actually life-changing? And I said, well, I don't know and I do know. In other words, I can't answer all the details related to that question, but I can say this your devotion to Christ, Christ's glory displayed in your life is not about your happiness. It's not about you being able to look back on a 70 or 80 year long life and say, wasn't it all fantastic and I served the Lord the whole time and was faithful and effective in ministry. It really comes down to God's glory and he determines how it's going to be displayed. And if it's later in your life as opposed to earlier, then be happy about it. Be overjoyed and recognize that the Lord will use you you in a way that the scales are ultimately balanced. And one thing that you can do just as well as everyone else on the planet is be faithful. You can be faithful. Now for men, I have three quick things. Men, express your thanks to God and for her, whoever she is, whatever measure of excellence she has exhibited. Thank God and tell her. Tell her. Take the time. And not just today, not just once a year. May she know that you revere her, that you praise her, that you think highly of her. Whoever, whoever she is, let her know. Two, encourage her to excel still more. And I don't mean tell her to excel still more. <laughs> hey, honey, you're doing okay, but do better. Everybody can do better. No, encourage her. How? I'll go back to number one. Express your thanks to God and to her. But have it on your mind that she needs to be encouraged for her efforts to be faithful to the Lord. Encourage that. And last, exemplify Christ. And don't pretend that you are if you're not. Be faithful to lead. Let your wife or your mother or your daughter, your grandmother, whoever it is, the women in your life, the women in whose lives you have influence, if you have a top-down attitude that says, well, you know, we in our Calvinism have arrived at the proper way of thinking, if only you would come over to our side, yeah, that's helpful. Or on the other hand, you've made every effort to appear to be a man that your wife knows you're not. Just say it. Start with her and then go to the leadership of the church and just be honest. She needs you to be honest. One of the things in my life that is one of the greatest blessings is honest men with whom I can be honest about my own weaknesses. If I weren't able to do that, I doubt very much they would be willing to do that. Men, be willing to exemplify Christ. Be humble. Tell the truth. Be strong. Those of you who are men and not yet married, get into this practice. Don't let a good life pass you by because you weren't faithful to these things. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us in the body of Christ to know and enjoy so many godly women So many women who are not only excellent wives, but excellent daughters and excellent mothers and and others who uh, other sisters of ours who are of equal importance. Who are faithful in the church. To love and to serve, to sacrifice and to do good works. that they, too, are priceless is so important for us to remember that their practice is a godly practice and that their piety is exemplary and that their prize is the same prize and that is a God who is fearworthy. Lord, we ask now that in our time of singing that we would not think, well, now is the time to worship, but that we would realize that this is simply an extension of the worship you have enabled us in, in hearing and receiving your word, but that it would be a magnificent, worshipful expression of right thoughts about you should be we thank you so much for your love for us amen